0: Um, Right now, I'm going to invite Pastor Chris, and he's going to preach. Let's give him a big, special welcome. Right. Who knows those nerds? It probably doesn't happen to you, but I got down after doing the offering message, and halfway through the song, I suddenly thought, have I muted my microphone or not? And... uh, According to our sound technician, I had not. Um, So uh, kudos to the sound team for turning me off and not spoiling that last worship song. You guys can be seated. Thank you, guys. You can also take your seats. Haven't they done a fabulous job this morning? I'm excited about the Word of God. Because the Word of God is, is one of those things which can be transformative and exciting or boring as back poop. Depending on whether you're open to receive from it. I mean, I can remember my first uh, experience of opening a Bible. Uh, and my first thought was, there are a lot of pages in this thing. And they're really thin and the writing is really, really small. I am not going to enjoy reading this. But over time, I've realised that it, it, isn't, it isn't a book to skim through. It isn't something to get information from. You know, it's, the, the discussions that we have about the Bible shouldn't be like, yeah, I read, uh, read Ecclesiastes the other day. So it was okay, I guess. Yeah, what did you think? Yeah, yeah, it was nice. It's, it's not that sort of book. We read the Bible because it needs to be transformative to us. What we read in it should change our lives because we should be reading it with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, asking him to reveal things to us. And so I'm going to read some of it to you today. I'm going to read some really interesting stuff. Uh, Are there any children in the congregation? I got into trouble in our chapel service this morning because I mentioned sex in front of the children Um, No, there aren't any good. Um, uh, In context, it is in the Bible, by the way. This is not just me wanting to throw words around because I I like the sound of them. This is actually biblical. Did I hear a young voice then? Uh, I'll I'll be very careful what I say. Um, But the, the Word of God should transform lives. and so I want you to be ready this morning to have a transformation in your life. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm quite happy, thank you. I don't need a transformation in my life. You just, you just go ahead and talk and leave me be. I'm not interested in you changing anything, thank you very much. Change your mind. I'm not going to change anything for you, but the, the God can. And it doesn't matter whether we're in a deep, dark place believing that God can't do anything. or We're, we're pretty high. We're thinking, yeah, we'll pray this morning. I'm, I'm like that with God. I mean, you know, nothing can shake me. There's always something more that we can get from God. And so I want you to be open this morning to receive something from the Word of God that will change your life. Um, and uh, I, I want to pray for some people at the end of this message. And if, if, you want just, if, if it's just a touch from God, a refresher, uh, if, if you're really feeling good about God and you just want to feel better about God, I, I invite you to, to get involved in that. But if you, if you discover something today which has changed attitudes or, or, or ways of thinking in your life that are f- going to free you, then I encourage you. Uh, when, I, when I call to pray for people, I want you out on this altar as fast as you can because I believe the, the transforming power of the Word of God is going to hit you this morning. So are we ready? I might, I might preach now after that, that intro. Um, so who remembers we're, we're on a bit of a journey here to discover the true character of the God we serve. Uh, we, we, we try, we're doing that. We're, we're discovering the character of Yahweh so that one, we know who he is, which is a good thing but we also know how to represent him accurately to others. And so far we've discovered some pretty incredible attributes that God only has, but he's actually the very embodiment of those characteristics. So I want to look at a scripture this morning that reinforces those attributes, but also introduces us to another one of God's attributes that we often struggle with. And that's the idea that God is a God of justice. Not a term that brings warm fuzzies to most people's hearts. So actually, I want you to open your Bibles. If you've got a a, a real paper one there, I encourage you, get it out. Um, If you've got it on your phone, uh, get off Facebook right now and open your Bible app. Because this is I I just don't want you to look at words on a screen this morning. I want you to have a resource so that when you open your Bible app for prayer during the week, as I'm sure you all do, um, or the the actual book, I want you to actually refer to this and look at it, because it's, it's important. Um, this is something that we need to dig deep into. So open it up to Exodus chapter 34, and we're going to start at verse 6. And this is, this is an extremely dense piece of scripture. The, the characteristics of God that are sort of squeezed into these two small verses are absolutely mind-blowing. And because of that, it's important, because it, who knows, it's really easy for us to descend into a place where we distort God's character. We say things about God that aren't true, and unfortunately, we believe things about God that aren't true. And this is a great, this is a great scripture uh, to get wrong, um, because it's a very challenging scripture, but it actually uh, is, is very instrumental in our understanding of how God can be a God of love and a God of justice. So have we all got it there? Uh, If not, it'll be up on the screen as well. So um, if you haven't, next week, bring your Bibles. Exodus 34, chapter, chapter 34, verse 6. It says, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity. Who knows what iniquity even is? It's a fancy word for wickedness. So if you've done any iniquity today, stop it. Um, I forgive iniquity, rebellion and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and the fourth generations. The mood in the room suddenly gone down. Because here we see two very different character traits of God and we're totally confused because it starts off with God abounding in love and compassion and mercy and he's absolutely over the top with his forgiveness. And That makes us feel really great. Who wants to have a relationship with a God like that? I do. And if you don't want to, that's fine. More for me. Less for you? That's, I'm greedy. I'll have as much of God as I can get. And then we get into verse 7. And it's like somebody's thrown a bucket of cold water over us just as we've snuggled up into a warm blanket of fuzzies with God suddenly pff, it's like this nasty wake-up call. And we see a different side of God. We see his justice or, he, or you might call it his judgment. And the Bible even describes it as his wrath. And so... We're a little confused here. This is, this is a relational challenge. How do you relate to somebody who you think is loving most of the time, but then just as you get comfortable, seems to want to punish even the children of the guilty? This is, I don't know about you, but this is weird. Who is this God? You're all very quiet. I can see Bailey there scrolling through a Bible app or Facebook. Okay, so this is, where, this is where we need to be the sort of followers of Jesus who are prepared to roll our sleeves up and genuinely desire to understand what God's word is trying to tell us about this character, characteristic here. So when we're learning to read the Bible, if we understand that the Bible is God's revealing his story and his name and his identity and his character to us, then we have to pay serious attention to the form that it takes. God is always never described in the abstract in the Bible. We never see God described as the uncaused cause, the, the spirit of the great beyond or anything, anything like that. The main, reason, the main way the Bible teaches us about God is in stories and in poetry. And it's important to know the difference between the two because I mentioned in our chapel service this morning, poems give the author the license to lie well perhaps not lie, but exaggerate or to appeal to something that's not just our rational sense it appeals to our emotional sense and so the use of uh, things like hyperbole who knows what hyperbole is? yes, outright exaggeration, yes quite right um, I was going to get Jordan up to explain that to us but what is the time? I don't have time, oh, no I don't have time for this Come on, we've got to get into this. So strangely enough, if we look at Exodus 34, 6 and 7, what do we find? Firstly, we find that it is poetic in nature. uh, And the NLT in my Bible showed it like this, but a lot of the other translations just show it as text. So we don't automatically get that. Funnily enough, it is an abstract list of God's attributes, which I've just said you don't find in the Bible. So if it is a list, why is that list there? Well, it's obviously part of a story. So what story is this scripture part of? So let's find out. Scroll back in your things, back two chapters, chapter 32, Exodus 32. Raise your hand if you've got there. Quick, okay, okay. is there a chapter heading? The golden calf. So here we have this story, and the chapter heading is quite right. It is about a golden calf. And so it's a, this is a crucial story in the plot line of the Bible, Because we need to summarise it and we need to understand it because God actually speaks in Exodus 34, 6 and 7 because of what happens in this story. It's not an isolated phrase there. And so if we look at verse 7, which is the bit that makes us say, stop, stop, run away. We're never going to understand it unless we understand the story behind it. So in Exodus 32, we've got this story of God has redeemed his people. He's remembered his promises to Abraham and through his, his mercy, his compassion and his grace, he's rescued his people out of Egypt and brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there he's revealed himself to them in a cloud and a thunderstorm on the top of the mountain. And he's greeted these people. And he said, G'day, my name's Yahweh. And I'm the God who's just rescued you out of Egypt. I'm the good guy. I, I, I've obeyed my promises. I've... You, I've Acted with grace and redemptive power, and I've brought you out of Egypt. And here are a few rules. Uh, First of all, don't go off looking for the other gods. Uh, They're useless. They don't like you. They're not. They're going to use you up. Promise you things they can't deliver, and spit you right out. So stick with me because I've already proved I'm Yahweh. I'm the God who rescued you. Remember, I'm the one who got you out of Egypt, not them. So no other gods. Clear? And they say, right. Number two. Don't make any of those fancy idols that the other gods like because I'm not into that stuff, so forget it. Good, okay, excellent. So what happens? 40 days later, 40 days, just over a month later, they're there at the bottom of the mountain. Moses has gone up to chat with God and they're, they're talking around and they say, where's Moses? He isn't here. Isn't he supposed to be telling us what to do? He's, he's he's up in that cloud. What is that thing with that cloud? This Yahweh guy is weird. Why is he in a cloud? We need something a bit more concrete to worship. Here's a good idea. Let's make a calf out of all our earrings and let's worship that. Let's call that Yahweh. You think really? And so they, they make a golden calf. And and if we read in uh, Exodus 32 verse five. Uh, It says, Aaron saw how excited the people were. They've got to go, it's like, whoa, this is exciting. Tell everybody. And so he built an altar in front of it. And they got even more excited. And so he said, we're going to have a festival to the Lord. And they said, yes, a festival, just what we always wanted. And so they got up early the next morning. They were so excited they got up early. Chapel service is 8.30, by the way. (laughs) To sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. Which happened at the chapel service, yes. So basically, and our English translators are a prudish lot because really what it says, they got fat on rich food, they got hammered, and they had sex. That's all it says in the, in the Hebrew. And so you sort of think, Where on earth would these people get the idea that this is the way to behave in worshipping Yahweh? Let me ask you a question. Where have these people been for 400 years? In Egypt. Have they been worshipping Yahweh in Egypt? No. They've been worshipping Egyptian and Canaanite gods. And how do you worship these gods who are mainly gods of fertility? You eat, drink and be merry. To be Englishly euphemistic. And we sort of. And so it was natural to them. This is what other people did in worshipping their gods. They had ritual food, ritual drink, and ritual sex. And so the really tragic part is that after being freed from all of that and introduced to Yahweh, the first thing they do is exactly what He told them not to do by treating Yahweh like any other Canaanite or Egyptian God. And so guess what? Yahweh is ticked he is a he's hurt I mean he, he's he's rescued them he's shown them that he he is upholding his end of the covenant that he's made with them he loves them he cares for them he wants the best for them and what do they do and so he gets Moses up and he says look you've got to convince me that these people are worthwhile he says I'm thinking of pushing the button and starting again and Moses is like far out really he says yep I'm going to start again just just with you and Moses thinks that idea is even worse than the first one. He's like, no, 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 no. And he, racing, his mind is racing and he says, ah, remember, uh, you're, you're the God of compassion. Uh, you made a promise to Abraham. Uh, you, you want the, his family to, to be the father of many nations and all of that. And God says, oh, that's right. Okay, good, yes. That's who I am. So, so we're not going to do that. Um, and Moses sort of is a bit overwhelmed by all of this. And And so he says, Yahweh, quick, show me your ways. I want to understand how you're a God of justice, but you're also a God of love. And this brings us right back to Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7. And so I I mentioned earlier that it's it's got a poetic structure. And uh, this particular structure, if we look at it in the English Standard Version, because the lines are shorter and it fits on the page better, um, we can see here that... It has what 's called a, a chiastic structure, which is uh, very um, sort of erudite words for a cross, an x um, and so when we look at it, it actually if you see the the lines with the numbers, both lines with number one are talking about the same thing. lines with number two are talking about the same thing, and number three is a unique one in the middle. so the first line talks about and if you go back to your uh, New Living Translation, it says, not thousands of people, but thousands of generations. And so line... Yep, yeah, excellent. Um, so the first line and the last line are talking about generations. The second line and the other, the third line, which is still two, um, talks about sin, iniquity and transgression. And the middle line, of course, is that kicker which says, I do not excuse the guilty. And so this is, a, an observ- this is a very powerful and coherent statement about how God's love relates to his justice. And so we're told at the very beginning of this, the first line, that Yahweh keeps his covenant love for thousands of generations. Anybody any idea how long that is? Well, let's start at a thousand. If we say a generation is 30 years, how many years is that? 30,000. He says thousands of generations. So he's talking about thousands of 30,000s. So he's talking hundreds of thousands of years. How long has it been since uh, Jesus died and rose again? About two. So we're we're not even getting to the first thousand yet. And so this is poetry. So if we see large numbers in a poem, what does it mean? (laughs) Generally not a mathematical formula. If... It implies forever. And he's not actually trying to measure time here. It's basically a poetic way of saying God's covenant love is with us forever. It will never leave. He will never forsake us. His unfailing or covenant love is with us for how long? Forever. Okay. So who thinks that's pretty good? That's good news. Um, However, that doesn't mean that he will not... He will excuse or not deal with the sin of individuals or families to the third and fourth generation. Who wants to know what that means? No, nobody. Okay. I won't preach next week then. Uh, Because we don't have time to get into that this morning. But next week we will talk about what that means. Because that's actually very important to understand what Yahweh is trying to get at here with this. Um, it, we can visit all sorts of interesting things like generational curses and stuff like this. But, so come next week. It's going to be amazing. Um, but so, but we've discovered you know, initially God is love, he's merciful, but he's also the God of judgment. And this doesn't ca- cancel out or contradict his mercy, but we can see that God tends towards being merciful. There's a huge difference between three and four generations and thousands of generations. We're looking at the numbers three to four, or the numbers 30 to 100,000. So there's a, there's a huge difference. So we can say God tends towards mercy, but he is still a God of justice. So if we look, there's, and you might think, well, hang on, we're, look, we're reading the Old Testament here. Surely that doesn't apply to us. You know, we, we're in the New Testament. We're living in a time of grace. Um, we can do anything we like because uh, God's extended grace to us. I'll talk about that little uh, uh, nugget next week as well, um, which will uh, change your mind on that. Uh, but it's also in the New Testament. James chapter 2, verse 13 says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not m- been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Judge James says that God's mercy triumphs, which doesn't mean it cancels out his judgment. It means that harmoniously work together. So God is love, is the primary thing that he is accomplishing even through his justice. And God cares deeply about how we treat each other. And so we've got to look, if our, if our vision of God is that he's primarily out to get us, he's like the detention police, wandering around to see if we'll slip up so he can punish us or put us in detention. And he monitors our behaviour so that he can catch us out you know every time we sin it's like he taps us on the shoulder and says oi caught you detention for you if we've got that view of god then we've got a view that's a distortion of god's character and so when he when he cares about us when he he looks on our behavior he does it as an expression of his eternal permanent binding covenant love towards us and so how does he keep this covenant love? Some of our translations, and we, we've read in both of those, I think the ESV says steadfast love, and the New Living Translation says unfailing love. There are other translations which just use love, which is also fine, except for the fact that our English word love is so mangled that it's basically useless. I mean, we love Netflix and we love our wife, and if they're the same thing, then our wife's in big trouble. Um, because Netflix involves changing a lot of channels and that's not good. Okay. Um, and so in the Bible, God's and it's translated in Hebrew to covenant love. So it's not about how God feels about us. It's how he's promised to act towards us out of his covenant. And so that, that love he shows us is in his character. He has made a promise to us that his covenant love will last forever. And so... It's, a, it's about action, not feeling. It's where he seeks the well-being of his people regardless of how they respond to him. And why would he do that? Because he made a promise that that's how he would behave. Uh, can I ha- hands up all the married people here? Uh, hopefully all of you on your wedding day made a promise. You promised to love, honour and uh, get together with um, the person you're getting married for the rest of your life. You promised to love them. Now, Tell me honestly, do you always like the person that you're married to? Sometimes, uh, let let me just put it out there, sometimes I bet you downright dislike them. They do things that you do not like. And guess what? Why don't you get divorced? Because you've you've made a covenant promise. It's covenant love. Sometimes you might not like their behaviour, but you have made a covenant pact to love them. You don't necessarily have to like them all the time, but we, we love them. We love, e- we love each other, and we like each other most of the time. And so when, when we talk about God's covenant love, it doesn't mean that God is happy with what we're doing all the time. In fact, that's the profound thing that's going on here, is that He has eternally for thousands of generations bound himself permanently in a covenant commitment with people that he knows are deeply flawed and selfish. And he knows what he's committing himself to. He actually says several times in the Old Testament, you are a stiff-necked people. So he knows what they're like and he complains about them, but he still shows his covenant love to them. How is he going to maintain that commitment? What does he say in verse 2? It says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's plan for keeping his covenant love is to forgive us. It sounds way too simple, doesn't it? But he says, that's how I maintain my covenant love. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin for thousands of generations. The great thing that this means is forgiveness isn't something we have to drag out of Yahweh. This isn't something that God reluctantly agreed to. I'm sorry, Charmaine. Yeah, I know you're, you're naughty, and just this once, I'll let you off. That's that's. Oh, Charmaine says she's got away with a lot more than that. <laughs> It's not something that we need to be in fear of that if we stuff up and we repent, this time God might say, this is just too many times. No, sorry, you're on the trash heap. I'm not keeping my covenant with you anymore. You're out. And we we live in fear of that. But it says here that it flows from his being because that's just who he is. He keeps his promises. Therefore, when the other side of the covenant relationship breaks the promise, what's his first Reaction to forgive. It's not his second thought, oh, those, okay, I'll forgive them. It's like you've broken your promise, I forgive you. You've stuffed up again, I forgive you. You've reneged on your word, I forgive you. You're feeling shame for what you did, I forgive you. I take away that shame. That's his first and only reaction when we repent. Repent. Some of us say we believe that. Who believes that? Come on, who who believes it? Who's prepared to say they believe it? Come on, you need to be brave here. Come on, on the front row, come on, you believe it. Now, you might have put your hands up, and there are some of you, and I won't put your hands, I won't ask you to put your hands, some of you lied. And how do I know you lied? Because if we believed it, we would be able to move past a lot of the sins in our life that hold us back. So I don't know about you, but sometimes I look back at my life and I look at sort of it's like a train wreck of bad decisions and sort of bad actions, bad all, all sorts of... There's shame for things that I've done. There's anger at things that have been done to me. There's all of this stuff that when I look back on my life, I think far out. I'm just lucky to have survived. Anybody Anybody else? But the thing is, I know when I've believed God's forgiveness, when they're, just th- they're always there in my past, they don't go away, but they don't rule me. They don't affect me. I don't bring them up to people every time we have a discussion about God's mercy. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, well, I remember that time when I was 16, and actually, I remember that time when I was 12, when my sister was crawling between the gap in our front gates. For some reason I just thought, I wonder what happens if you hit someone on the head with a pine cone. <laughs> <laughs> and I can remember it was, as, it was as clinical as that and I picked it up and I thumped it, <laughs> And she cried and went and told Dad. And so my father was an expert at child interrogation. Um, he gets me in front of him and he says, so uh, what'd you do that for? I said, what? <laughs> He said, I think you know. I said, No, no idea. Come on. He said, What have you done? The first three I listed, wh- he didn't even know about. <laughs> and then I said, Well, I might have dropped a pinecone. He said, I was standing at the lounge room window watching. I thought, Oh, OK, right, all my excuses fled out the window. Um, and, and it's a fun memory, but I, I don't apologise to my sister anymore for hitting her over the head. <laughs> Because A, she's forgotten about it, I think. That's what a blow on the head does. Um, (laughs) She's been a bit strange ever since. Um, But that's something that I've repented about eventually. um, And God has forgiven me. It's not something that I agonise over. And yet there are some of us who say we believe in God's forgiveness. And yet every time it, it comes up, we talk about the things in our past that we can't let go of. You know, God's forgiven me of this, but it's still, I still lie awake at night thinking about it. I still feel guilty about this. We, we, even, we even use our life circumstances to justify how we're thinking. Have you ever heard people who have talked about, yeah, well, you know, I was, I was boiling the kettle the other day and I was pouring the tea. I burnt my hand and I sort of felt God saying, yeah, that's because you're still not living right. That thing you did is, you know, I'm still punishing you for it. And people look at their circumstances like that and they'll say, yeah, bad things happen to me because God is still punishing me for that sin that I confessed to him. I shouldn't have told God because he's been on at me about it ever since. You sort of think, come on. When God says he forgives, he forgives. The, the interesting thing, the word forgive in Hebrew is the word nasar, which is spelt the same way we'd say nasa. But don't say nasa because it's, it's not what it means. But nasa means to pick up. You know? I am nasaring this pulpit. But the same word means forgive in Hebrew. If you nasa someone, you don't just pick them up, you forgive them. And so when God forgives us, he lifts our sin from us and carries it himself. It's a physical thing. Uh, I wish we had to- I mean, I might talk about it next week, but the idea of our sin being something um, immaterial is, is totally wrong. The Bible describes sin as a physical thing, that as we, as we bring our sin into the world, it's a bit like throwing a rock into a pond. It, the ripples of our sin affect other people. And you think you times that by seven billion people all throwing rocks in the pond. Um, very big pond. Um, but instead of doing that, if we throw our sins to God, that he takes it away. There, is no, there, there are no repercussions, spiritual repercussions, to our sin. He has forgiven us. And so you know, this morning, the biggest step of faith you might take is actually believing that God has forgiven you. And if, and if, if that's a revelation to you this morning, you need to take hold of that. that. It doesn't matter what you've done, but the things that are holding you back are your vision of God's character that is incorrect. When God says, my covenant love lasts forever, and that the way I implement that love is by instantly forgiving transgressors who repent, then that should be gone. It's gone. Every time we bring it up to God, he has to go back and, tr- and try and find where he put it. Because it's gone from his memory. But we hang on to it, and it holds us back in our walk with God, in our relationship with other people. And so we need to get rid of it. We need to take hold of the fact God forgives you. Repeat after me, God forgives you. Thank you. <laughs> How about God forgives, God forgives me? That's a good. Um, thank you for the first one, though. that was. So I want us to uh, if I can get Jordan I want us to stand this morning and I want you to look. At your life. Here we have two promises from God. The first is that if we make a covenant commitment to God, His promise is that He will always, forever, keep His side of that covenant. The second thing is He works that covenant, that acceptance that He has of us through our repentance. As soon as we repent, as soon as we come before God and say, Oh, God, I stuffed up there. He says, forgiven. I'm feeling guilty about what I did then. No, forgiven. I still just can't get rid of the guilt. Ah, He says, forgiven. But we need to accept that. We need to take that on board. The first thing we've got to do before we can do that is to take on board the fact that God wants to have a covenant relationship with us. Now, we call it salvation. We call it accepting, accepting Jesus. But it's what we do as followers of Christ. To become a follower of Christ, we actually have to accept the fact that he wants that relationship with us and he wants to forgive us. And, and in this church, we do that by asking people to pray a prayer. Not a prayer that demands anything, but a prayer that asks. A prayer that asks Jesus to be the Lord and the Saviour of our life, that allow us to have a personal relationship with Him. And in a moment, I'm going to get us all to pray that prayer. But if you're here this morning for the first time, or perhaps you've been to church before, and perhaps you've even made a commitment to God before, but you know you're not living in that commitment, I want you to pray this prayer afresh believing that God is renewing himself in your heart and just so I know who that is can I get everybody just quickly to close their eyes if that's you this morning you're here for the first time that you've never committed your life to God before or you have done that before but you know that you're not living that life and you'd like to just recommit that can I get you just to raise your hand while nobody's looking so that I know who I'm praying for this morning as we pray Awesome. Can you all open your eyes and can you pray after me? Dear Lord Jesus, from this moment on, I turn aside from all other gods. I turn towards you as my Lord and as my Saviour. Come into me now as a permanent home for your spirit. I now call myself a child of God. I will follow you for the rest of my days from this moment on. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Amen. While we're here, I just want to pray for people who haven't been able to take God at his word, that you're still Living in suffering because you believe that you deserve the guilt or the shame or the the fear or the anxiety that your sin has brought into your life. That you can't grasp the fact that Jesus has actually forgiven all of that. You are set free by his presence in your life. I'm I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But if that's you, I want you to pray in a moment as I pray for you, that you are released from that. And if, if, if you just struggle with the fact that God could love you, God could keep his side of the bar- bargain and the covenant, even though you dropped the ball so many times. And, yeah, you know, we all drop the ball so many times. I mean, our side of the covenant is in tatters. But God stands there firm and he says, my promises do not come back void. I'm always with you. If you struggle with that, I want you to cast that aside this morning. And grasp, hold anew of a faith that God is for you. God has promised you his unfailing covenant love for generations, thousands of generations. So Lord, I pray for every single person here who has doubted your love for them who struggles with the fact that whatever sins they've committed, whatever iniquities, transgressions, whatever wrongdoings, whatever guilt they hold, whatever pain is in their heart, whatever shame they are feeling, that you will never let go of your side of that unfailing love covenant that you have with us. All you require is that we turn back and we say sorry forgive us and Lord I pray that those words I forgive you that comes from your lips every time we repent are powerful and permanent in the lives of people who up to this point have doubted you Lord with your spirit wash away that doubt, cleanse our hearts and our spirits of the doubt that you are a redeeming God we take on board those words, I forgive you. I forgive you. We stand before you your chosen people, forgiven. Forgiven and walking in victory. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Everybody who believed it said, Amen. Awesome. Thanks, Katie. Awesome. Hey, church, as you go into the week, um, I want to encourage you with something that I do personally every night. I, before I go to bed, I say, hey God, I repent of my sins I committed today. Not the day before because I believe I'm already forgiven for those. Help me forgive myself just as you have forgiven me. You don't have to do it on your own. God is there to help you. And you don't have to be in church to be forgiven. You can do it in your bedroom. Awesome.